When, uh, when Tim was putting the podium up here, I think you guys were chanting Tim. Or were you saying Jim? Which, because I, I, I mean, I was like, either way, I was encouraged. So, yeah. But uh, I, love the, I love the fact that you guys are appreciating our tech team around here because they are absolutely amazing. You people in the back and... Yeah, they do a phenomenal job, so I totally appreciate that. That was fun. Hey, if you're in Hayward, welcome. It is great to be together this morning. If you are online uh, around the world, you know, my mom actually tunes in from England to see us. And uh, so, hi, mom. So I thought I'd say that this morning. And uh, if you're in Fremont here, it is great to be together as a church, isn't it? What a great way um, to begin our week of just remembering God's love for us, so the, uh, wasn't the worship awesome this morning? Just like loving how engaged uh, we all are and just so thankful for our worship team. Like God is so good to us. That's just one way we're seeing it. So, all right. So about 2000 years ago, there's a guy named Seneca and he's a Roman philosopher. And so you can imagine that he did a lot of reading, a lot of writing. And uh, as he got older, I'm sure his eyes, just like mine, have gone, went bad. You know, they, they, they got blurry. And so one day he's looking at his books and he realizes he can't read them. And, and then there's a glass of water sitting in front of his books. And he realizes that if he looks through the glass of water, the words actually become clear. And what he discovered is what we now call refraction, you know, the bending of light for focus. Now, it wasn't until uh, 1727 that a, that a guy named, a British guy named Edward Scarlett, he developed the uh, modern day glasses that we have, like over the ears and, and two uh, lenses, and which have really changed a lot of people's lives. I mean, did you know that 4 billion people in the world wear glasses? So if you wear glasses, you are not alone. You're actually in the majority. And it, the the experts say 75% of adults actually need to wear glasses, but only 64% wear them. So I just tell you, if you're in that 11%, come on over. It's okay. It's okay. We'll love you. We'll love you. And I have absolutely benefited from this invention, as I'm sure some of you have. I have hypometropia or farsightedness. And so I'm thankful for refraction. I'm thankful for this. But it's not just glasses. You know, if you think of refraction in terms of telescopes and microscopes, the amazing discoveries that have been made because of the bending of light, the refraction. And it's not just lenses either. If you've been, you know, out and about in the rain the last few days when the sun has shined through the water and there's a rainbow, that is refraction, right? The light comes in, it hits that water and it just shows off. And this beautiful rainbow, if you're a Pink Floyd fan, you remember the prism on the front of their album, you know, one of their most famous albums, The Dark Side of the Moon, where it's the refraction, right? You, you've seen that. So we're entering into a new series this morning called Gospel Refractions. And it's like this, when the light of the gospel hits our lives, it changes the way that we think and act. It changes what we see as valuable, and it changes how we interact with the world and how the world sees us. So... The light of God comes in and gets refracted to others through us. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2, Paul says it like this. Therefore, in light of the gospel, be imitators of God and his beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant 
offering and a sacrifice to God. And what is beautiful about this passage from Ephesians, this verse in Ephesians, is that's actually in chapter 5, which means there's four chapters before it. Do you know what Paul says in those four chapters? In chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Jesus, we have redemption. We have forgiveness. We've been lavished with the riches of his grace. We have obtained an inheritance. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have been enlightened. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, he tells us that these blessings that we have in Jesus aren't a result of our works, but of the grace that God has given us. It tells us that that it's all through what Jesus has done, not what we have done. And then in chapter three, he tells us that we now have confidence and boldness to come before the throne of God, that we would be rooted and grounded in God's love, that we would be able to do far more than we could ever dream or imagine. And then chapter four, he says, he tells us that we are able to have unity with each other in the body of Christ, not just hanging out together, but giving and receiving for the purpose of building one another up. That's chapters one through four. That's the layout of the gospel. And then that famous word in chapter five, therefore, in other words, in light of these things, be imitators, walk in love. He's saying, live as loved. You you got the love of God in your life, therefore go out and be loved. And Paul was saying this, when you know you're loved, you can love. When you know you're loved, you can love. And did you hear it in the songs that we sang this morning? That one drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes, right? Or he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Um, He laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life for me. That's the gospel. That's the light in. And so as we talk about gospel refractions, it's the light in and then the light back out. And there's a great example of this in the book of Exodus. It's not just the New Testament that talks this way. In Exodus, we see, uh, you remember it's the story of the Israelites coming out of slavery. They were in slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt and uh, God brings Moses, a leader, and says, hey, I want you to bring my people out of slavery. And over those first 19 chapters, we see God bring freedom to his people. In fact, Exodus 14, 14 says this. It says, "Um, you need only to be still. I will fight for you. So there's the beauty of the gospel, chapters 1 through 19. I'm bringing you freedom. And then guess what happens in chapter 20? The Ten Commandments. And he's saying, in light of this, in light of everything that I've done, this. He could have easily put chapter 20 at the beginning. Let me give you the Ten Commandments first. And if you obey all these things, then maybe I'll free you. He didn't. He's like, let me give you the freedom. Let me, let me do the work for you. And then in light of that, in light of the gospel refraction, the light in, the light out, is the beauty of the love of God. So... As we talk about refraction, our main topic for today is love. In this sermon series, we're going to go through a lot of different refractions of the gospel, 
but the main one that we're going to talk about today is love. And one of the greatest examples of that is in 1 Corinthians. And uh, maybe you would turn there if you brought your Bible this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we're going to be. But before we jump into the reading of our text this morning, I want to give you a little bit of background because I think it'll help you as we begin to understand uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Because chapter 13 means there's what? 12 chapters before it. So there's something going on that brings us to chapter 13. So uh, 1 Corinthians is a book written by the pastor Paul. He has gone out to the town of Corinth and he, is going to, he has planted a church there. And so it's written after Jesus' death, his burial and his resurrection and ascension. And it's, it's written as the new churches begin to get started. So in Acts, there's an explosion of the Holy Spirit. Lots of people come to know Jesus. And then they started churches, much like Resonate today. And in that, um, this is an instructional and a correctional book for the church because the church is brand new. And so Paul's looking at him saying, hey, I want to help you. I want to speak into this. Now, Corinth was a Roman city. It's actually the fourth largest Roman city during this time. And it was started by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. So about a hundred years before this began to happen. There's a, a Greek or there's a Roman amphitheater there if you're familiar with archeological um, stuff. And then there's also the imperial cult is there. There's a temple uh, with the Roman religion there. It's also a massive trading route. So, you know, you think of one of those little skinny parts of the country where people would cut across, almost like across the Panama Canal. Uh, that's what's going on is this becomes a massive trading route because it's the easiest place to get across to the different territories around Corinth is to go this way. That also makes it a very diverse city. So there's Jews, there's Romans, there's Greeks, there's lots of different ethnicities there. And, and therefore, lots of different religions, traditions, and lots of different cultures. And you can imagine it is also, as a port city, it is also a major hub for prostitution. Which, you know, there's a word, um, I don't know if you guys use it anymore, but it's Corinthian girl. And it actually, if you look it up in Urban Dictionary, parents, if your kids come home and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, look up those words in Urban Dictionary. Sometimes it's pretty helpful. Sometimes it's really crass, but it is still helpful because you're understanding what your kids are talking about, okay? But I looked up this word Corinthian girl because I had not heard it before, and sure enough, it's still a word that is used, Corinthian girl, and it describes prostitution. In fact, the urban dictionary example is, you will not leave this house dressed up like a Corinthian girl. So it's, and I was thinking, wow, this is all the way back from Paul's time, this kind of slang language has held on. So this is, the, this is the place where Paul has planted a church. Now, if you know about Paul, when he goes and starts a church, it's not like he goes out and says, hmm, let me see if I can steal from all the other churches. Let me see if I can find the healthiest people in town. Let me see if I can find the most moral people in town. Let me, let me see if I can find the people who are acting really well and let's plant a church with them. That's not Paul's approach. Paul actually is a businessman. And he is, he is what they would call a tent maker in those days. So he actually made tents. And these were the things that people, these were the kind of um, buildings that people lived in. And so in a sense, Paul is a contractor. That's what, that's what he is. He's doing the, the work of construction. And so he goes into a town. He sets up his shop to build tents. And then he starts to make friends with people, just like many of you are. 
And then as he makes friends with people, then he begins to speak the gospel into their lives and see if they're interested in what Jesus has to say. And then as they're interested and as they respond favorably, he begins to teach them more and they gather together and all of a sudden you've got a church. But you have to realize all these people are coming from various backgrounds. They're coming from various um, ethnicities. They're coming from various cultures. They're coming from different religions. So this is a very hodgepodge group of people that has been put together into this church. Now, this church probably started around 50 AD, and the book of uh, 1 Corinthians um, has been estimated to have been written somewhere around um, 53 AD. And, and why did Paul write this letter? Well, he had pastored this church, he had started it, and then he raised up other leaders and said, you guys take it over, I'm out of here, I'm going to go to the next town, and I'm going to go plant some more churches. And then he begins to hear things that were going on in the church, and he hears the struggles that they are facing. Now, Paul had taught the Corinthians the gospel. It's obvious if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, that they know the love of God. In fact, if you read the first chapter, verses 1 through 9, he says things like this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, to the saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, they're part of the greater family of Christ. They're a church with a small c, part of the capital C church. And he says, grace and peace to you from the God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. He's giving them a blessing. And then he says to them, he says, I give thanks to my God for you always because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony of Jesus was confirmed amongst you. This sounds like a pretty good church. This sounds like a church that you would say, I want to join that. I want to join people who are rich in the gospel. I want to join people who have heard the grace. I want to join people who are blessed with the blessing that Paul is putting upon them. I want to join these people. But then we don't get very far because verse 10 of chapter 1, he begins to talk about the problems in the church and the, and the plot thickens. And this church begins to sound a lot like the culture that it was in. Because the first thing they're doing is they're arguing about who's your leader. Do you follow Paulos? Do you follow Paul? Do you follow... And it would almost be like you guys saying, do you follow Pastor Ryan? Do you follow Pastor Jim? Do you follow Pastor Roberto? Do you follow... Instead of saying, no, 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 we follow Jesus together. Right? And you're like, well, I got baptized by Pastor Ryan. You know, like, you can't call me out. Like... Ryan did the baptizing here. This one's going to stick, you know? I mean, if Jim baptized you, you know, but Pastor Ryan, you know, that's kind of what they're doing. They're having these dumb arguments. And there was also sexual immorality there. And he actually says, there's the kind of sexual, sexual immorality in this church that not even the pagans would tolerate. Whoa. And then he says, there's lawsuits between believers, it's significant because he's, you know, as believers, we're under God's law. We're not under the public law. And so as believers trying to work out our differences, we, we adhere to a much higher calling to the calling of God. And he's saying, you've given that up and you've actually gone to the public sphere to try and work out your differences, which is such a bad, like, picture of the gospel for them. They're like, oh, well, I guess you're stuff didn't work. Your religion didn't work. Your 
beliefs didn't work, so you're coming over to us now to work this out. And Paul is saying, like, this is crazy. Like, the gospel reconciles us. It pulls us together. There shouldn't be lawsuits among you. And then he calls them out because there's prostitution. Guys have a girl on the side, or girls have a guy on the side. And he's like, this should not be. And then there's preferences and traditions. I'm just thinking that maybe um, the church was all of a sudden, they're like, hey, we got a fog machine. And, uh, you know, and... And we got some drums and we, we got some electric guitar and half the people were like, you shouldn't use that stuff. Like fog machine in a church, that's not in the scriptures. And so all of a sudden, all these like preference issues come out and they're arguing about them. And then on top of that, they have arguments about gender. Who's more important, the man or the woman? Who, who plays the more critical roles, the man or the woman? And they're arguing about this stuff. And then on top of that, Paul says, hey, when you guys get together to have a meal, some of you show up early and eat all the food. And the rest of them, the people who show up later, they don't get anything. And he's like, there's a bunch of selfish people. Like if you're that hungry, eat a snack before you come so that you can all be together, right? Be like one dude showing up at Resonate and eating the whole box of donuts. (laughs) We'd be like... Dude, one, that is just going to be bad for you a lot later. But two, what about us? You know, that's like the amount of selfishness, right? That's, and then he, so he's calling them out on this. And, you know, the, the, the truth is they're just a normal church. They're just a normal church. They've come out of the culture. They, they, they have this background of all these different religions and all this. They're just a normal group of people. And so he he commends them first, but then we see this massive, like, just waywardness. Now, what's Paul to do? Because Paul really has a choice at this point, doesn't he? He has a massive choice. He can either say, okay, I love you, and I'm going to work with this, or he can say, I'm done. Like, you know, most of us, when we, if we would walk into a church where there's that kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated amongst people who don't go to church, we'd be like, I'm out. That's ridiculous. Or if there's lawsuits between the believers or there's like heresy going on about who's the greatest pastor in the church or who's the leader, we'd be like, that church is, I'm, mm. no, that's, in fact, we're not going to call it a church anymore. We're going to call it a progressive church. They don't even, they don't even adhere to Orthodox theology anymore. And, and so I'm out, like I, I'm done. And that, that could have been Paul's choice. He could have just said, I'm done with you. Like, we're not going to call you a church anymore. I'm going to start over in Corinth because this has gotten so bad. But here's the thing. Paul knew the love of God for him. And he knew the grace and the mercy of God for him. And therefore, he could not just say goodbye to the Corinthian church. And, and this is where we get to in our text. And so will you stand with me as we read God's word? We're going to read from 1 Corinthians 13, where he shows them a more excellent way to respond. And starting at the the very last part of chapter 12, he says, I will show you still a more excellent way. Resonate, are you hungry for a more excellent way this morning? Amen. So he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned but don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Resonate, this is God's word for us. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. So in this moment of gospel refraction, Paul says, I want to show you a better way. And the truth is that probably some of Paul's buddies had come in there and said, well, you know what? If we would just teach them better, if we would just give them more theology, if we would just give them a lecture on morality, if we, would just, if we, if we just taught them how to do things better, then this would correct them. But Paul, he knows that the real difference maker is love. And the main thing that changes us is not knowing the depth, is, is knowing the depth of God's love. That's the main thing that changes us. Because Paul, he is a Pharisee. Now, if you don't know what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee is basically uh, uh, one of the, the religious leaders of Judaism, of the Jews. And these guys went through intensive training to become Pharisees. So Paul would have been a student of the law. He would have been a teacher of the law. He would have memorized most of the Old Testament, which is remarkable, honestly. I mean, I, I, I'm like, I'm not even sure if I can memorize the book of Philemon. That's one chapter, you know, and let, let, he memorizes the majority of the Old Testament. He is a disciplined man. He's astute. He's gifted. He's equipped. He is got morality dripping off him and he is zealous and passionate, but none of that changed his heart and he knew it. There was still an emptiness within him. And then he encountered Jesus. Maybe you don't know much about Paul, but his story is that his name started as Saul, kind of a nickname for him, Paul, Saul. He went back and forth. I guess his mom gave him two names but he's this devoted Pharisee. He excelled at it. And as a Pharisee, when he sees the new Christian church take off, he feels threatened by it. And so he's going to try and stop this church from taking off. So he, he begins to persecute Christians. He actually gets letters from the Roman empire to say, Hey, can I go persecute these people because they're teaching a deviant way? And he begins to persecute in such a way that these Christians, these young Christians begin to flee. And so he's making religious refugees out of people. And it all comes to a climax when he is, when, when a man named Stephen, who was a pastor in the early church is preaching and some people disagree with him and they begin to pick up rocks to stone Stephen because they so vehemently disagree with him. And Paul, Saul is on the side holding their coats. In other words, saying, I give you permission to do this. And so he is complicit now in murder. Okay. Now this is where we pick up the story of Paul in Acts chapter nine. And I'm going to read you just a little bit of Paul's story because it's amazing how God transformed Paul's heart. It says, but 
But Saul, breathing, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's persecuting the church. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. So here's what's going on. Paul is persecuting, and Jesus shows up. Now, I don't know about you, but um, like if you came over my house and you like mess with my house or you mess with my cars or you mess with my possessions, that'd be one thing. You know, we'd probably have words. But if you mess with my kids or my wife, we're going to have more than words, right? Because I love them. Do you realize that Paul is messing with Jesus's kids? That's what he's doing. He's complicit in the murder of Jesus's kids. And how does Jesus respond in this situation? Does he say, Paul, I'm done with you. I'm going to snuff you out. Paul, I'm done with you. You're done. I'm, you're gone. You're dead to me. No, he actually stops and says, let me show you incredible grace and mercy. What you're doing, you're actually doing in ignorance, Paul. And then the story continues and God surrounds Paul with people to love him, to teach him, to affirm him, to disciple him. And what Paul deserved is not what he got. He realized in that moment, you know who Jesus is? Jesus is the one who is patient and kind. Uh, Jesus is the one who doesn't envy or boast. Jesus isn't arrogant or rude. Jesus doesn't even insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. Jesus didn't even keep a record of my wrongs. But he rejoiced when I got the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus had hope in me when there was no hope. Jesus endures all things. Jesus never ends. So Paul, the murderer, the persecutor, meets Jesus and is loved. There's heart change here. And you've got to realize here that love is not a principle. It is an experience. And Paul experience the love of God. So now as we go back to our story in 1 Corinthians, where you have this church that is started by Paul and now is completely corrupt, there's treachery, they're acting worse than the world, worse than the secular culture. How does Paul respond? Does he say, I'm going to snuff you out. You're dead to me. Let's start over. No, he responds with the same gospel that lit up his world. What got refracted was the love of God to Paul, the way that he felt safe from Jesus, even though he was persecuting Jesus' kids. And he's like, he loved me. He loved me. How can I say to this church, even in all their treachery, that I don't love them? Of course I love them. 
course I'm gonna try and be patient and kind. Of course I'm not gonna keep a record of wrongs because that's what he did for me. And Paul speaks truth to this church, but he also knows that he's gotta be patient and kind with them. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gives them good instruction and correction, but he also doesn't expect overnight transformations. He's like, hey, I know you're dealing with the sexual temptation and sin in your life. Let's, let's get to work on it because Jesus worked in me and he was patient and kind to me. And Paul speaks the truth to the church, but he also knows that even though he, Paul himself has overcome some of the sin issues that they're struggling with, that he can't boast about being over those issues and he can't make them envious of his successes because love doesn't play comparison games. Jesus never played a comparison game with Paul. Jesus never said to Paul, I, I'm doing this way better than you, so therefore get your act together. He just loves him. And Paul speaks the truth to the church, but not in an arrogant or rude way. And Paul speaks to the truth to the church, but he doesn't insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. And Paul speaks the truth to the church, but he doesn't keep a scoreboard of wrongdoing. He only rejoices in the truth. And Paul speaks the truth to the church, but he also bears with them, believes in them, hopes with them, endures with them. He gives, he never gives up on them. And so here is Paul. He's experienced the love of Jesus and what gets refracted is that love. See, when we know we are loved, we can love. And you know, the story goes on because the, 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 the work that happens in 1 Corinthians, you know, you know um, he loved this church so much that he wrote more to them than any other New Testament church. There are two books of 1 Corinthians, there are two books to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's the longest piece, the longest letters in, in, from Paul to any church. And by the time you get to chapter, by, by the time you get to 2 Corinthians, what's happened there is the love of God has come to Paul the love of God has gone from Paul to this church. The church has gone, oh, he loved us like crazy, even when we were out to lunch. And then Paul begins to tell them, would you mind helping other churches that are also out to lunch and having a hard time? And they're like, yes, we would love to. And so this gospel refraction gets refracted, gets refracted, gets refracted. And Paul actually, at the end of 2 Corinthians, calls them his partner in the gospel. Like they have caught on to the love. Their hearts have changed. Now, we have a brand new logo at Resonate. That's why I'm wearing this today. This is our new logo. And some of you are like, I still have no idea what that is. <laughs> it's a diamond. It's, the, it's, it's the, the, the outline of a diamond. And what we are doing is we're saying, this is us. Because what the diamonds do, they refract the gospel. They refract light. The light of God comes in. The light of God goes out. You know, diamonds in, them, in and of themselves, they're valuable, right? I mean, if you put a, a, a diamond in a safe deposit box in the back of a bank somewhere, it would still have value, but it wouldn't be value. It, it wouldn't show off its beauty, have you ever gone to a, a, a jewelry store? There's usually more lights in a jewelry store than in a landing pad at San Francisco airport. You know, there's like, why? Because what they're trying to do is get you to spend 10 million bazillion dollars 
And they know that it's not, you're not going to spend 10 million bazillion dollars if it's darkness all around. They're like, but once you put the light into that diamond, it just exudes. You're like, oh, that's so beautiful, honey. Will you get that for me? <laughs> right? Because it's just alluring. It's just so beautiful. That's the same with us, resonate. You know, in and of yourself, you are, you're, you're imago Dei. You're made in the image of God. But you know when you really shine is when God's light comes into you and it goes out. And diamonds don't produce their own light. It comes from the outside, which is really joyful for us because you don't have to be the one who works like, I mean, can you imagine a diamond sitting there going, produce light, you know? I mean, how frustrated would that diamond be? But that diamond really takes on value when it takes the light from elsewhere and just shines it. Like that's when it is at its best. And do you know you are at your best when the light of God comes in and goes out? That's when you're at your best, when the love of God comes in and it goes out. Now, here's what's interesting, is God tells us that we are to love people. He tells us we're to love others and to be patient and kind. He tells us to not be envious or boast, to not be rude or arrogant, to not exist on our own ways, and to not be irritable or resentful, to not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice in the truth. He tells us this is what you're supposed to do is bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, and love. He says this is never to come to an end. This is what we're called to as believers in Christ. And he actually says this, to do this not on the easy day, but to do it on the hard day. You know how I know that? Because the, the things that Paul is picking at in 1 Corinthians are not easy issues. Lawsuits, sexual immorality, adultery, prostitution. Like he's, he's picking some dark, deep issues. He's not saying, um, hey, I, I know you're arguing about where to go for lunch. Like, you know, is it going to be Taco Bell or is it going to be Pearl Bay. I mean, where are you going to go? You know, is it sizzling lunch or is it, where, where are you going to, you know? He's not arguing, he's saying, let's deal with some dark, deep issues. On your hardest day is the one that I want you to love. And maybe in our lives, the darkest issues, they're hard for you. You're like, God's calling me to be patient and kind when my spouse has an affair. You're saying, even though my dad and mom wounded me deeply, that I'm not to keep a record of wrongs. I'm not to think about having a father wound or a mother wound. Because isn't that all that is? It's just keeping a record of wrongs. Like, I mean, all of us got hurt by our parents. They, they did their best, right? We're, we did our best with our kids and we tell them all the time, oh, you're going to be in therapy for that one. You know? Like, let's just be honest. Like, you know? But maybe you show up to your missional community this semester, and although you're gluten-free, and you've told them a thousand times you're gluten-free, someone brings a dessert that has jam-packed gluten in it, you know? And you're just like, seriously? I can't eat the dessert again? I told you guys, I'm gluten intolerant, you know? And, you know, at that point, some of these, and, you know, like, we laugh about that, but honestly, if, if you're gluten intolerant, 
your life is hard. I know that. Like, you have given up a lot socially and in your interactions with people. Like, my heart is empathetic towards you. Like, it's hard. It really is a difficult place to be. And yet, that is when every week of your missional community, and they have brought, everybody else has brought gluten-filled snacks every week, and they're doing it again, that is when you're called to love. That is hard. That is hard. Maybe a, a coworker or somebody around you is making fun of you for your convictions. That's when you're called to love. Or maybe, oh, and this one will sting really bad, when the honeymoon is over in your marriage. And maybe it's been over for t- 10, 20 years. And you don't even like each other anymore. And that's when you're called to love. Or when your kids come home and say, hey, I'm starting to question my gender. I'm starting to question my sexual identity. Man, you have a choice at that point. You can say, I banish you, I ban you, I, you're dead to me now. Or you can say, I love you. That's the hard day. That's the hard day, isn't it? And that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, show up on that day and love. And let me tell you, Resonate, the only way that you're going to be able to show up on that day and love is this. If you know how much Jesus has loved you. Yeah. If you can stop and say, Jesus was patient and kind to me. If you can say, Jesus didn't keep a record of wrongs, but he rejoiced in the truth. If you can say, oh, how he loves you and me. If you can say, you know what? He bears all things. He endures all things. He never gives up on me. Because what are you doing? You're saying he's coming in. This is him to you. And it's going out. Like that's the beauty of gospel refraction. And if you were going to be able to love You've got to be able to see the gospel, the beauty of his love first. You know, I saw um, a mug this week. Um, it, it said, you know, but first coffee. You know, have you, have you guys got that mug? Like you've seen that mug around? Like, you know, people who are, you know, it's, it's the Christian safe drug, coffee, right? <laughs> you can be addicted to coffee and it's all right. So I, I actually, just out of fun, I... I made a pot of decaf at the office here at Resonate to see, you know, to see if like the, uh, the sanctification was really the Holy Spirit or if it was just caffeine, you know? And I can tell you wholeheartedly that the staff here, it is the Holy Spirit, it's not caffeine, so. But first, coffee, right? I mean, that's like the way that we start our days, but first, coffee. And I think what Paul is saying to us is this, but first, love, But first love, first realize the love of God to me. So your kids come home and they tell you crazy things and they're telling you I'm I'm struggling with this thing. What do you do? But first love. Your church has an LGBTQ conference and you're like, I don't think the church should be talking about those things. Those acronyms aren't even in the Bible. And why are we stirring those things up? Isn't that what the culture is talking about? Why would the church talk about that? And yet... 
you know, the reality is that our pastor and our elders have decided this is a really important thing for us to talk about. And this is a really thing, important thing for us to engage in in our community. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we need to talk about these things. And so can you, like as a mature person in Christ, put aside your preferences and say, okay, because Jesus has loved me and because Jesus doesn't, do you realize that Jesus doesn't always like your preferences? Do you realize that? He doesn't always like your choices? Like, have you, have you grown enough to realize that? Like, he's like, oh, so that's what we're doing today? I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> like, when he looks at you, do you think Jesus says, oh, that guy's a good catch? Like, man, I got a good one when we got her. Like, she's amazing. Like, I, I'm so glad that I saved her more than these other people. No, he doesn't say that. He just says, I love you because I love you. See, when, when we're able to see how much he loves us and his preferences like that, and we're willing to see what he puts up with with us, guess what you can put up with? Do, do you see? This is, the, this is the refraction. Now, I have to tell you, like over the last um, couple years, it's been some of the hardest time in my life. Um, and, you know, it's no secret for most of us that COVID was a really hard time. And the, and the way that, you know, you talked about it, you dealt with it, it didn't matter which side you were on, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, you know, get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated. You probably lost friends in this last season, right? Did you vote for Trump? Did you vote for Biden? Did you vote for some independent person? You didn't vote at all. You're still bad news, you know, like it. And and I just felt like I've lost so many of my friends in this season. Like, just hard. You know, and I, and I thought I was doing what was right. I thought I was, like, loving well. I thought I was showing empathy well. I felt like, you know, I like the, it was hard. And yet, I lost some of my, my best friends. And honestly, like, I'm exhausted by some of those conversations. I'm not even sure if I want to go make things right with them. Because I'm just tired. And so this sermon really hit me hard, honestly, because I, I just felt like God was speaking to me in the midst of it, you know? And I felt like, I felt like God said, you know, Jim, if, if you're gonna try and love those people on your own, it's not gonna work. Like you don't have it in you. And I'm like, that's the most truthful thing you've ever said, God. Like I don't have it in me. I, I just want to abandon those people. In some ways, I'm like, I'm glad we moved out of town because I don't have to deal with that stuff in the grocery store every day. You know, like we, we moved from our old place to, our, to, to Fremont. And for some of that stuff, it's just gone now. And I'm like, uh, it's, it's gone physically, but it's still there emotionally and intellectually and spiritually. And I know I've got to make amends for it. And I'm like, I can't do it. It's just too hard. And yet here's the thing. God would say, Jim, it's not about you. It's about you realizing how much I love you. It's about how much, you, you realizing how much patience I've, and kindness I've had with you. How much I haven't kept a record of your wrongs. How much I've bared with you, I've, I've endured with you. I've, and if you understand that, Jim, for the first time, you're gonna be able to love. You're gonna be able to love. When, when you think about what did he bear on the cross for me? my sins? What was the 
amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, then I can look at all these things over here that I define as wretches that probably aren't as wretched as I think, but I can show love because of what Jesus has done for me. And that's the hope, Resonate. That's the hope that is, as we discover the great love of God, oh, how he loves us, that we would then go out to a world and we wouldn't look at LGBTQ people and say, we're done. But we would say, we love you like crazy. We love you like crazy. Like we have our own sexual immorality issues that we're trying to deal with too. Like we're trying to base our identity in the wrong place, just like you are. But can we be patient and kind with one another? Can I not keep a record of your wrongs? And you know, it didn't mean that Paul didn't deal with the issues. It just meant love first, love first. And I love that about our Savior. You know, we have this, Pastor Ryan says this to me, he said this to me all the time when I started at, at Resonate. Um, he says, we front load with grace here. We front load with grace. And I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. Front load with grace. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationships, in your workplace, don't go in with what Paul would have done and said, uh, hey, I'm a Pharisee. You need to be morally right. You need to be this. You need to obey all the rules. You need to do all this. Don't respond like the Pharisee, but respond, respond like the man and the woman who was changed by Jesus. We're loved. And when we know we are loved, we can love. Let's pray. God, I pray my brothers and sisters here, God, whatever hardship they're facing, whatever way that they are saying, oh, it's so hard to love people in my community, I pray, God, that you would show them how much you love them so they could love. And God, for those of us who have a really hard time accepting your love, God, we pray that our brothers and sisters now would just receive permission from your Holy Spirit to know they are loved. They would give themselves permission to say, I'm loved. To say, when we sing, oh, how he loves us, that they wouldn't say that that song is for somebody else. They would say, that song is for me because he loves me. Oh God, I pray that that would be true for all of us. In Hayward and online, and here at Fremont as well. And we'll give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.